Welcome into Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman, special edition of the show today. Two interviews I did on the radio. I've been doing lots of radio, which is fun. It does make it a little bit harder to also fit in podcasts, but did want to keep the feed live and share some cool stuff with you. That really does fit kind of what Chasing Interesting is about, talking to interesting people about interesting things. This week, Two contributors, well, one's a lot more than a contributor, but two of the members of the Crooked Media family. Tommy Vitor is one of their co-founders, co-host of Pod Save America, and more importantly for our purposes today, Pod Save the World. He was the spokesperson for the National Security Council during part of the Obama administration, incredibly bright on foreign policy, and that's where it combines with sports is what we had him on the radio to talk about the potential for an Olympic boycott in 2022 in Beijing, why it probably isn't a good idea, but why it's being thrown around and what the actual impact would be. And if it's not a good idea, what can be done to help curb the human rights abuses that are happening in China. Then a week later, back on the radio, back with a different member of the crooked family host of America dissected, Abdul El Sayed. He is a doctor, an epidemiologist, most more specifically, also a uh, physician, CNN contributor, uh, has a couple of books out, including one called Healing Politics, which was good. I read it about how medicine and politics interact in public health. He was actually the public health director for the city of Detroit for a while, ran for governor of Michigan in 2018, wound up losing in the primary to Gretchen Whitmer, who wound up becoming Michigan's governor. So two great conversations. We'll play the one with Tommy first and then bump right into the chat with Abdul. Uh, Hope you enjoy it and make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss an episode, whether it's a best of compilation of something you may have missed on the radio or a fresh new episode right here on Chasing Interesting. It is overtime on the fan. I'm Craig Hoffman. We head out now to the BetQL guest line. Bet smarter, beat the books. Download the BetQL app today or visit BetQL.com. That is where we find co-founder of Crooked Media and co-host of Pod Save the World, an avid sports fan who sneaks sports topics into that show, a show about foreign policy on a weekly basis. It is Tommy Vitor. Tommy, really appreciate this, man. Thanks for coming on. Craig, thanks for having me. It's good to be back in uh, in D.C. by phone. Yeah, it's a lot better to be here by phone when you're still in Los Angeles <laughs> by weather because it's miserable and rainy today. It's like 80 degrees, I'm then sorry. it's 40. You, you know how it is. You were here long enough. Yeah, I know it is. Yeah. All right, yeah. so you always do a great job setting up these topics on your show, so I'm going to try to let you set the stage here because you had a great conversation with your co-host on Pod Save the World, Ben Rhodes, last week about the potential for an Olympic boycott in 2022 in China, and that's ultimately why I wanted to have you on. I heard that conversation sure. was like, I want to bring that because it's it's very much not straightforward. This is a really complex geopolitical relationship with far-ranging yeah. consequences and implications, so... In short, why is a boycott of the 2022 games in Beijing being considered, and who is considering it? Sure, of course. And also, just so your listeners know, I, I ripped on Tom Brady a little bit, even though I'm a Patriots fan on today's episode, so if they want something a little lighter, uh, they can find that there. A, a way to <laughs> so, really unite the country, if you will. <laughs> so, world leaders, they're, they're under increasing pressure to boycott the 2022 Olympic Games because China has thrown... Uh, by some estimates, more than a million Uyghurs into what they call re-education camps. The Uyghurs are a mostly Muslim ethnic minority group that lives in Western China. Now, the U.S. has called what's happening uh, a genocide and a crime against humanity. And the reporting that's come out of Western China about what actually happens in these re-education camps 
and I'm putting that in air quotes, um, is as horrific as you can imagine. There are stories of women being forced to be sterilized, systematic rape. There's reports that these uh, the Uyghurs are being forced to work in factories. So human rights groups are saying we should not give China this massive platform via the Olympics to showcase itself to the world to put on, you know, what they might call a propaganda display the way China did in 2008 when this crime against humanity is happening. So the question then becomes, would that work? Like, how do public pressure campaigns work through sport in protesting a government like the Chinese Communist Party? Do they work? And in this particular case, what do you think would be the actual impact? It's a really good question, and it's, it's frankly the hardest one to answer. So the, the one example we have to look from in history is in 1980, the U.S. led a Western boycott uh, of the Olympic Games in the Soviet Union over their invasion of Afghanistan. And if you want to just look at that in terms of like, okay, what was the outcome? Well, the Russians, I'm sorry, the Soviets stayed in Afghanistan until 1989. They were there another nine years. Uh, So I I don't think most people believe that it was particularly successful. And then you later had the Russians, uh, the Soviets, I'm sorry, boycotting the American Games in Los Angeles, right? So you basically just sort of split the world into Cold War and non-Cold War communities. When it comes to China, I'm not entirely sure what would get them to end this horrific genocide, this genocidal campaign against an entire people and a culture. Um, I I think it will take some sort of multilateral effort that brings together lots of like-minded countries to, to pressure the Chinese. I'm not sure that boycotting the Olympics will do it. I'm not sure that it won't. I mean, if you were to tell me that there was a 30% chance that it would work, I would say do it because what's happening is so horrific and so evil. But I also, you know, I'm, we're not here for moral victories, right? Like we want to uh, do something that will help the people who are suffering in China. Like that's the key. Right. And the thing that I really appreciated about what you and Ben said was like, okay, yeah, if there's a chance that this could work, do it because ending what's happening there is, is horrific. But if it's not going to accomplish it, there's all these athletes from 1980, American athletes that never got to participate in the Olympic Games because the nature of these sports is that the athletes peak every four years. This is their one, maybe one time in their whole life shot yeah. to do this, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Look, I mean, these athletes, they did no say in where the Olympic Games were going to be held, right? I mean, they were awarded, uh, by the way, the process by which countries receive the Olympic Games or the FIFA World Cup is as corrupt as it comes. <laughs> it's right? it's people handed out bags of cat. It's, it is absurd. We, when I was at the White House in, um, what year was it? I, it might have been 2009 or 10. We had Barack Obama fly like special to this, this, with this last ditch attempt to get the, uh, the Olympics to come to Chicago. And I think we took fourth place out of the, the remaining countries. I believe the Russians got it at the time. But, you know, it was just, it, it's not on the level. Right. So, you know, there's other, there's other things you could do. There, some people are advocating uh, and calling on the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, to move the games, to move them from China to somewhere else. And then, you know, there's some precedent there. The IOC banned South Africa from participating in the Olympic Games from 1964 through 1988 to protest apartheid. That was part of a, a much broader set of protests uh, against apartheid that were ultimately successful. So, you know, you can look to history to see in different ways this could cut. Tommy Vitor, co-founder of Crooked Media, co-host of Pod Save the World with me, Craig Hoffman, here on 106.7 The Fan. Uh, what other measures do you think could be taken via sport to help this, and, and specifically related to the Olympics, whether it's corporate sponsors making statements or doing something? like How, how would that work and possibly involve economic pressure to accomplish this goal? 
Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good question. I mean, so there's a, a lot of major corporate sponsors for the games. I think like Airbnb. Um, I think there's soft drink companies, right? You can see those corporate sponsors decide like we're going to take a stand. We don't want to be associated with an Olympic Games uh, that is in a place that is conducting a genocide. Um, I also think like you know one of the most iconic, famous sports photos of all time is the photo from the 1968 Olympics in Mexico where sure. two U.S. athletes, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, are on the podium with raised fists, right? And they're, they're protesting racism. And, I, I mean, I just think, like, talking about these issues, athletes raising awareness actually can, can do a lot. I mean, you know, like, a couple of years ago, athletes like LeBron James was being – he was getting told, shut up and dribble, stick to sports, Right. And now most leagues are pretty full-throated in support of, of racial justice and a whole set of issues. I'm sure that might bother some people. It makes other people really happy. I think it's a good thing for athletes to speak their mind. But generally just talking about these issues and, and you know, raising the cost for China in terms of its international reputation, I, I think that's a very important part of the puzzle. So that leads actually what you just said about the the picture in the 68 games and what we remember. And, and, you know, obviously people should study up on the history and how things that are seen as iconic now were not exactly received warmly back then. But specific to a protest in China, not exactly, uh, to use air quotes again, a beacon of free speech. What would happen if an athlete, you know, they they win the gold medal? And first of all, I should say, um, because I was actually looking at this for the 2021 games uh, that, that are coming up in Tokyo the IOC currently has a rule on the books that athletes cannot protest, but they are revisiting that. So let's say they revoke that and there are protests for social justice and any other reason that could happen in Japan this summer. If an athlete of any country decides to protest what is happening in China while they are on a podium in 2022 in China, like what happens there? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, so just sort of thinking about it, what happens is probably, unfortunately, it, it, it doesn't ever get covered in China, right? Because mm-hmm. they're censoring everything. They would they would lock it down and make sure that that wasn't seen within China by Chinese citizens. Um, depending on which host country's athlete uh, does this protest, how big of a deal it is, you could see some sort of retaliation by China. That wouldn't be you know, physical retaliation, but you know, some sort of economic retaliation, right? I mean, look, when um, the, the Chinese came down really hard on the NBA, on Daryl Morey, the GM of the Rockets at the time, over the summer, over uh, uh, over their territorial rights. You've seen China come down really hard on uh, uh, companies like Disney if they put sort of pro-Tibet or, or you know, pro-Hong Kong messages on their air. So the Chinese government is getting increasingly aggressive in its efforts to censor people, not just at home, but abroad. So I, I suspect there would be some sort of retaliation. I don't know how severe it would be or how effective it would be. Yeah, it would be really fascinating to know what like the U.S. Olympic Committee would tell athletes, and especially you know some of the higher profile ones, because uh, you know it does I guess it's a Winter Olympics, but you know if if it's a Summer Games, does a LeBron James, if it's basketball or whoever the the breakout star of the Olympics, like do they even bother listening to whatever guidance they're given and just be like, no, I'm gonna gonna do the right thing? Uh, who knows? Yeah. Um, that, that's a great question. And look, you know, remember that like some of these NBA players, they weren't exactly thrilled when Daryl Morey spoke up sure. about China's efforts to destroy Hong Kong's democracy. Right. So you know, it, 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 we, we'll see. Yeah. And that kind of leads to where I want to close with you, um, which is 
I, I guess the the try to make this as concise as possible, but why are these situations so much harder than people discussing them give them credit for? And I guess this to to kind of frame that even better, like when we talk about intent versus impact, how much do those kinds of conversations enter or those kinds of thoughts enter these conversations where if I'm a LeBron James, like, yeah, I'm printing money in China. And and, uh, so for me personally, I probably don't have the power to stop what is happening. uh, A genocide, like you said, it's horrible. You can acknowledge it. But if I say anything, I'm just losing a gigantic market. So we talk about intent versus impact. How does that frame these kinds Mm -hmm. of conversations in and outside of sports? I mean, it, that's the, that's a great question. I mean, look, we struggled with this all the time in government, right? It's like you have a bunch of very smart people who sit around in the Situation Room or the Oval Office, wherever they are, and they and they try to figure out what the impact of a certain set of policy options will be on a really hard problem. But at the end of the day, it's a bunch of human beings, and they're not perfect, and they can't tell the future, right? And they have human failings, and you don't have know how the other guy is going to react, so you make mistakes. And so I, I imagine LeBron James certainly viewing this through a financial lens, uh, but he also probably wasn't totally well informed on what was happening in Hong Kong or understood the extent mm-hmm. of it. And, you know, he, I don't know that we could expect every athlete to know everything that's happening uh, around the world. But, you know, look, to your, your point you made earlier is exactly right. I mean, the athletes in 1968 paid an enormous cost, right? I, I think, you know, they had a hard time um, you know, I think the runners and their families were kicked out of the Olympics. They were yep. suspended by the sports governing body. They got hate mail, death threats, right? So there's a cost to being one of the early adopters of this kind of protest. Colin, Ka- Colin Kaepernick saw that. Other athletes over time have dealt with it. So, you know, it's, it's an individual cost-benefit analysis for the athletes, and it's uh, a, a much broader set of geopolitical considerations for a government like the U.S. when you talk about whether to – to boycott or not, because you know what, you also need the Chinese to do a lot of big things for you when it comes to tackling climate change or, right. you know, fill in the blank big issue. For sure. Uh, yeah, it, it's incredibly complex and uh, I appreciate the perspective on it here on the radio. And if we can find an excuse to do it again uh, at some point down the road, we'd love to. Anytime, man. This is a blast. Thanks for having I'm, me. I'm saying if you if you have any takes left over that you didn't get out on take line or something, and you just want to like fire off on sports <laughs> takes, uh, shoot me an email. Listen, I, I live for it. Uh, hopefully, you know, New England, the Patriots will um, will field the team this year. Right, looking for quarterback, if you know anybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I've been looking at nothing but mock drafts as I prepare to host our NFL draft coverage, and uh, that certainly could be a spot. So study up on, uh, on Trey Lance and Justin Fields, and uh, we'll, we'll reconvene. Right. There you go. All right, it, Tommy Vitor, uh, the podcast is Pod Save the World. Appreciate the time uh, tonight here on the radio. Thanks for having me. Abdul, always appreciate your time and really grateful to have you on talking to you a year after we did this the last time. And it it was funny looking back over some of the questions and how much we didn't know then that we do know now about this particular pandemic. But tonight we'll keep it pretty centered around sports and as professional sports have continued to go on through this and, and now here in D.C. at least. Every team is welcoming fans back. The Wizards have their first game with fans tonight. And I'd love to just start kind of generally with the idea of what professional sports have gotten right over the last year during this pandemic. And where do you think they they missed in a big way, whether it be in regards to their own players, into fan involvement? When you think of sports in the pandemic, what's gone right? What's gone wrong? Yeah, well, I really uh, first appreciate you having me. And, um, you know, sports are are near and dear to my heart. I, I grew up playing. Uh, all kinds of sports, and um, it was, I, I know, 
quite a bit of comfort to get to tune in and watch your favorite athletes uh, apply their trade um, in, in the heart of this pandemic. And it's great to hear that, uh, that, that we're starting to get to a point uh, where that is safe again um, to be able to go and watch in the stands. I'll, I'll break it down in the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, right, uh, it was really impressive to watch, um, you know, the NBA set up a bubble to finish uh, their season uh, last season. And, um, you know, they, they really took all of the insights seriously and were able uh, to, uh, to do so quite safely. And um, they kind of set the standard. And I think also just the bubble experience taught a lot of folks um, out in the real world about how to manage this and, and what can be done you know, obviously at the extreme to keep people safe. Uh, but a lot of the lessons learned from that bubble, uh, I think, were applied in institutions uh, all over the country. That's good. Bad, um, you know, when you talk about college sports, there's always an added question of uh, whether or not what you're doing is putting the athletes in, in harm's way, considering the fact that they, they are not paid for, uh, for, their, um, for their labor. And uh, there are major institutions, be it the universities or the NCAA itself, that are making a lot of money off of that labor. And so uh, there are a lot of questions about, you know, whether or not it was uh, correct for NCAA sports to, to pick up in the way they did. Uh, and you think about, you know, the infections that uh, people got along the way, doubtlessly many of whom uh, will, will continue to have long-term consequences, given the fact that about 30% of people who have COVID will have some long-haul symptoms, whether or not that was justified. Uh, and then the ugly was just the NFL and the end of the NFL season. I mean, you had, you know, wheels falling off the bus left and right uh, with very little effort to really actually protect the players and make sure that it was a COVID safe environment. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think we learned a lot about, about COVID-19. I think uh, athletics brought a lot of people out of joy, uh, but also, right, forced us to, to think about what is justified in the context of a pandemic. Um, and remember, that at the end of these decisions, there are there is money always at stake, uh, and that money tends to move decision making in some pretty profound ways. Yeah, without question, uh, that can be said in all walks of life, and certainly within sports. Uh, I'll ask the, this next question this way: as we focus on the fan part of it for a moment, do you think it's safe to go to a baseball game or other outdoor sporting event right now? And how does your answer change for basketball, hockey, or anything indoors? Yeah, I appreciate you asking the question that way because outdoor is very different than, than indoor. Um, if you're going to an outdoor event, I'd recommend, you know, part, definitely when you're, you know, walking in and going out, when you're uh, in crowded spaces, to, to try and keep your distance and, and certainly to wear a mask. Um, but if you're just sitting there in the stands and you're only around, you know, people in, in, in your family or in your bubble, uh, and I would say, you know, you're fine to, like, really enjoy the game and, you know, grab, grab something to eat. Um, more and more, it, it's getting quite clear that, you know, outdoor is really quite safe. And so uh, if you're enjoying an outdoor game, good on you. Um, if, if you're talking about indoor sports, that's a bit of a different beast. And um, the, the, the key thing I would say is wear your mask, wear your mask, wear your mask. And don't just wear your mask and it like comes off and it stays on your chin for, you know, a while. And you just leave it off while you're grabbing some popcorn. I, I would really wear a mask. If you're vaccinated, obviously your calculation changes quite a bit, but don't forget, right, that, um, that uh, until, you know, we have a level of vaccination uh, that is at that 70, 85% level, um, you know, it, it's still important to do basic things like wearing masks indoors to protect yourself and others. Um, but, uh, you know, the general rules that you would uh, follow in a grocery store uh, or um, another indoor store, you should follow at the game. 
Um, try and keep your distance, wear your mask. I'm not going to say that too many times. You should definitely wear a mask. Um, and, uh, and otherwise, enjoy your game. <laughs> um, real quick, non-sports follow-up to the first part of your answer. And Dr. Fauci, has I'm not doubting him in any way because I am not an idiot. This man has been the leading health professional on infectious diseases in this country uh, for as long as you and I have been alive basically combined. But are you surprised that like the current guidelines in a lot of cities, and I think the, the, the latest CDC guidelines still say, like, yeah, wear a mask outside considering what we know about the, the safety of ventilation and obviously outdoors is as ventilation as we get well you know it's it's it, that recommendation right um and when when public health recommendations are made they're sort of made to the lowest common denominator and and mm. that's kind of what's been confusing in the context of this pandemic when everyone's paying attention because the lowest common denominator is you know you're uh you're walking outside in a crowded city uh or you have the windows open in a bus and people are like well i'm outside and, and for those folks, yes, you should be wearing a mask. But, um, you know, if, if you're jogging outdoors or you're at a beach and, uh, you know, you're not in a full, thick crowd where you're constantly breathing the same air as everyone else, um, that's a very different kind of outside. And so it's hard, you know, putting, putting yourself in the shoes of a CDC uh, policymaker. It's hard to sort of ask, how is somebody going to use this recommendation and in what circumstance? For folks who take these recommendations extremely seriously, out, if, if the CDC says to wear them outside, you know, you could be jogging and you're 50 yards from the nearest person and you're like, I got to wear my mask. And, and that's, a, that's a little much. But for a lot of people who don't take these recommendations very seriously, the masks come off rather quickly. And, you know, if you're in one of those really crowded circumstances in a major city, for example, in that circumstance, you may consider, you know, wearing, wearing that mask outside. The more we learn, though, the more we recognize that wearing that, that, that this, this virus is far less likely to, to spread uh, out of doors um, because of, you know, maximal ventilation. Uh, and so we're recognizing that, um, you know, it, it's safer and safer to take those masks off uh, in, in almost any outdoor circumstance, so long as it's not, you know, you're, you're outdoors in a concert, nobody's moving, and you're like literally breathing into each other's faces. Right. Fantastic insight uh, from Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Amongst his uh, qualifications here, CNN contributor is probably where you might know him, but also former health director for the city of Detroit, so certainly familiar with making those kinds of things. All right, back to sports. How important are capacity limits, and how can they increase as people or more people get vaccinated? Yeah, let's step back. Look, all of us want to get back to a, a moment when we can go uh, to an, an indoor venue uh, and pack the seats and root for our team uh, and love every second of it and not have to worry about uh, whether or not uh, us or a loved one could get sick in the process. Right. right. That's the goal. Yeah. The way we do that is to get vaccinated. And I just want folks to understand, like, that's what's at stake here. Um, there are a lot of folks who are like, look, I'm sick of the pandemic, so I'm just going to you know, pretend like it's over or I got vaccinated. So, you know, I'm everyone else. I'm, I'm good. I get that. But like the more people get vaccinated, right, the more people choose to do that, um, the, the closer we are to that moment. And so if you've been vaccinated, amazing. Right. And obviously that means there are a lot of things that you can do uh, safely, but you should make sure that you're evangelizing. Right. Tell them, tell your friends, take that selfie. Right. Post it everywhere. Um, let them know that everybody's got to do their part for us to get there. Um, in, in, in the interim, right, in, until we get that level of community immunity or herd immunity, um, there's still going to be the risk that this virus spreads among us. And so it's important uh, to keep capacity limits uh, low because 
Um, it, it allows people to spread apart, and it allows uh, ventilation systems in indoor uh, settings to be able to carry out whatever virus is being shed from someone who may be carrying it uh, and not potentially knowing that. And so once we get to herd immunity, we start getting to the point where uh, we can get really back to the things that we love without having to worry about capacity, without having to worry about masks, et cetera. So the key thing that all of us need to do, right, is make sure that we're getting vaccinated. And, uh, you know, for the folks out there who are hesitant and are worried about it, look, I get it. I've been vaccinated. I got one in both arms. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the point that I make to you is that um, this virus is serious. It's deadly. It's taken 560,000 uh, people and counting in our country. But for you, maybe you may not be so worried about the sickness, but you do want to get to a point where we can do the things that we love. And let's be honest, going to a, a, a basketball game or a hockey game when you're one of, you know, 10% of a crowd is not the same as going to a packed arena, right? We go there for each other. And so in the same way that we go there for each other, we enjoy each other's company at the game, let's get vaccinated for each other um, and get to the point where we can do those things and get back to those joys uh, that make a life what it is. That's that's a great point too. The 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 difference in experience. I'll evangelize. I've also been vaccinated. Uh, excited to to get back to some games soon. A little bit of a, a different path for for a few questions here. Talking about the athletes themselves and repercussions of COVID and the and the vaccine itself. Um, I'm actually a personal trainer and on the side as well. So I've been paying close attention to some of the data that companies like Whoop have put out about how long it takes for people's HRV to to recover and, and some of the sickness and side effects from the vaccine, which happens. It's part of getting vaccinated. Your body's having an immune response. It's all expected and normal. But it has taken three to five days on, on average for people to get back to where they were. And when I think about that in terms of athletes performing, that seems to me like something that teams are going to have to consider as players become eligible and ultimately get vaccinated. So I guess in the form of a question here, if you're a league like Major League Baseball, would you be considering like a five-day break for a team if you could figure out the scheduling to allow players to get vaccinated and back to full health without an elevated injury risk as their body is recovering? Or how would you advise a sports league that came to you and said, Abdul, we understand that there are side effects here and, and the body's going to go through something how do we keep our players safe? Yeah, well, I, I would say that, um, you know, the, the, the safety question versus the discomfort question are two different ones, right? And, um, and you know, we know that these vaccines are safe and effective. Um, you know, I remember after my second vaccine, the, 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 the day after my second vaccine, I felt like I had sort of a mild, mild virus. But I'll tell you, you know, in, in my playing career, I used to play through mild viruses all the time, right? Mm. And um, it might have affected my play. It may have been uncomfortable, but it didn't have any long, long-term potential risk of, of, of real damage, right? It was just uncomfortable, and I probably wasn't my best player on those days. Um, and so what I would say is that, you know, if, if it would be great for uh, the, uh, the, the leagues to, to, you know, to give their players a day off uh, after the vaccine, maybe two days off if they wanted to. Um, but, uh, but, you know, aside from it being uncomfortable and it being, you know, and maybe them, them having a, a, bit, a bit of a slump, uh, on the day after the vaccine, just like we would with a cold or something else that players routinely play through. Um, I don't think there's any lasting uh, question for um, on, on the player's part in terms of uh, whether or not this could be dangerous. On the flip side, you know, Jason Tatum uh, says he still has to take an inhaler before every game because of his COVID-19, right? And so getting these players vaccinated is uh, perhaps one of the most important things we can do uh, for them because we know what the long-haul symptoms of COVID-19 are. Uh, and the risks that that poses for players uh, if they get sick. 
No doubt. That was actually going to be my next question. Uh, so you already answered that one, but it leads to the, the one after that, which is what are the rights of players and the rights of the teams and leagues to try to get players vaccinated? Obviously, some players have said like they want to learn more. They have some hesitancy. What can the leagues require and what can the what are the rights of the players? Because these teams and these leagues still have their COVID protocols. Like players, even though they're together all the time, are wearing masks when not on the floor uh, you know, or not on the field. So th- there's all these different things that are in place that ultimately – they want to be able to lift and have that normalcy. But just like you t- have talked about in nauseam in this interview, that requires a, a herd immunity like within their group to a point. So w- how, how does that relationship work with really any employer, but specific to what we're talking about, sports teams and leagues and the players? Yeah, let me first speak to, to hesitancy for a second. And you know, there's a there's a big difference between you know vaccine hesitancy and being an anti-vaxxer. And I I have a lot of uh, uh, my, 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 I have a lot of a soft spot for folks who are hesitant because, to be honest, right, um, skepticism, which is the root of hesitancy, not being an anti-vaxxer, but being hesitant, the the root of that is skepticism, and that's the root of science too. Any good scientist starts with skepticism, right? They don't necessarily take at face value what they're being told. What they want to do though is investigate the evidence, and the evidence is the antidote to uh, the skepticism. And so I encourage folks of all stripes. Uh, if you're hesitant about this, you know, bring that skepticism, but bring, bring that skepticism uh, to, to, to every, uh, uh, every source of information, right? I see a lot of people, they're skeptical about, you know, what the CDC tells them, but like their, their cousin Frank on Facebook, they just take that hook, line, and sinker. No, bring your hesitancy, your skepticism everywhere, and use data, right, to quell that skepticism. And you'll find when you look into the data, take a look at the trials, they're all publicly available. Um, that this is these are safe and effective vaccines. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the, the way I think about it from from the the, the league's perspective um, is that, you know, it's important that 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 folks understand that the decisions that they make, uh, like we do in team sports all the time, they affect our teammates. And um, in choosing not to get vaccinated, you are putting your teammates also in harm's way because it interferes with the team's capacity to achieve that kind of herd immunity. Um, and so I think it's important that that folks recognize that it's not just a personal decision. It's a collective decision. It's a decision that you make for yourself, but it's a decision that affects uh, people around you. And um, you got to take that into account. A, a lot of workplaces are making decisions about this right now, about whether or not they're going uh, to require people to get their vaccinations. I mean, we see this first and foremost in the healthcare setting where uh, you've got, um, you know, very vulnerable people who are coming and seeking care every day. And if a healthcare provider is not vaccinated, they put their patients uh, in harm's way. You know, when it comes to, um, to the leagues, I'm not really in a position to, to make those decisions for them. But I do think that is, it is really important that, uh, that they are uh, engaging the conversation with the players, uh, with the whole team in mind, and, you know, and taking precautions if enough people on a team are not vaccinated, right? It may mean that certain things are safer or less safe to do. And it's a trade-off between uh, those situations, those circumstances, and getting vaccinated. And I think the, the, the league would, the leagues would be in perfectly within their bounds to say, look, you know, if, the, if enough of this team is not vaccinated, they're just not going to be able to participate in the same way, which, uh, you know, it will change the conversation, certainly. But it's about, in the end, preventing uh, outbreaks. And, um, and that's, that, that safety perspective uh, has to be first and foremost. Definitely. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed with us here on 106.7 The Fan. Craig Hoffman with you tonight for overtime. I know we got a long way to go, uh, but we see the light at the end of the tunnel. And one of those lights at the end of the tunnel is that full stadium that we've talked about. 
What kind of timeline are we looking at to that ultimately happening? No, I'll tell you, I really hope, uh, and I can't promise anything, of course, but I yeah. really hope that by the fall, um, you know, when we're looking at, uh, for example, a new football season, uh, that we are going to be at a place uh, where that is substantially safer and we're looking at a football season where we're, we no longer have to worry about this. That's my hope. And, you know, looking at the numbers right now, I, I think that we can, we can do that. Um, but it's going to take all of us doing our part. I'm really worried about the level of, um, uh, of vaccine hesitancy right now, the fact that people are choosing not to take these vaccines because they're delaying that uh, for, for all of us and they're leaving uh, so many people in their homes and their communities vulnerable. And so the last thing I would tell you on this point is, look, if you're looking forward to being able to crowd into a football stadium uh, or to a hockey arena or to a basketball arena uh, or even just to, you know, to, to watch your kids play basketball without having to worry about uh, if anybody gets sick, get your vaccine. It's the, the, the most important thing we can do to end this pandemic uh, and get to a point where we can enjoy uh, the things that we used to take for granted again. I got one big heavy question and then one light one to end it. How long right. until we fully understand the long-term effects of what we've been through? And I know that's a multifaceted question, both medically, like mental health, physical health. Like how long is, as you mentioned earlier, like the, the stuff with Jason Tatum, there's just a really good report. Um, I want to say it was in either New York Times or ESPN. Actually, no, sorry. It was Washington Post. Uh, Mike Lee did it about how oh, there's a whole group of athletes that are having long-term effects. So you've got them, you've got the collective experience that we've all been through. How long do you think it takes the, the scientific community and the journalism community who's documented it to, to really be able to contextualize what we've all been through? I'll tell you this. We learn more every day. But the fact is, this virus has only really been with us since the end of 2019. And so it's telling us more and more about itself every single day. But we're not going to know what the long-term consequences are until the long term, unfortunately. Yeah. right? Um, we're going to have to be studying people 10, 15, 30 years from now uh, to understand what the consequences of infection were um, in ways that you know, we, we sort of see coming in ways that we might not. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it is frustrating, right? Because we want to understand what the long term is now, but we're dealing with a virus that simply didn't exist in humanity uh, just 16 months ago. And then last question for you. I, I really wanted to be able to ask you this a year ago and we ran out of time, but it seems appropriate here. So how has sports shaped your career? You were an athlete. Uh, it was really fun reading your book and, and you're about your high school football career. Like you were a good player. At least that's what you wrote in your book. That it's your book. So, you know, who knows? But then you go into this career in public health. You're, you're now doing uh, things in politics and media. And so I'm just curious, like how, how was being an athlete and having that mindset of sport and competitiveness and, and all the things that go with it shaped your career? Well, all for, all for three ways. First, um, the thing about sports is it brings people from diverse walks of life together. And uh, I learned how to not simply communicate, but um, to be in, in unity with uh, people who uh, came from very, very different walks of life to mine uh, as an athlete. The second is that um, it, it taught me how to lead uh, a group of people um, toward an outcome and to do so in a way uh, that brought everyone on board. And I, I really enjoyed, I, I got to serve as the captain of you know, all three of my high school sports teams. Um, and uh, thinking about how you inspire people uh, to believe in an outcome and to believe in themselves and to see things in themselves that they otherwise might not see. I, I learned that on the athletic field. And then lastly, um, I, I was not actually a great athlete. I was a pretty good player, um, but it didn't come naturally to me. And it took a lot of work. And 
it was time in the weight room or time in the tape room or uh, time uh, uh, learning a, you know, a, a new technique that I would you know, put lacrosse in, in college and spent a lot of time with, with a stick and a ball on a wall, um, uh, just practicing. And that ability to sort of hone a skill uh, over time, um, I think, carries so deeply into the rest of your life. And so for young folks out there, um, as you think about you know, your athletic career, just remember uh, that it doesn't really end um, when, when you, you, know, you hang up the cleats for the last time. The, the lessons that you learn uh, on the field, I think you carry into your life. And I'm really grateful uh, for my sports experiences. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter now and I'm already thinking about you know, how, to, how to empower her through sports and how to create a space for her to, to thrive and learn uh, if she chooses uh, in the way that I got to. No doubt. That's great stuff, man. Really appreciate the time here on the radio, the perspective, the knowledge, uh, and, and we'll be watching you on TV, listening to you, reading you, all the ways in which we can uh, consume your work. Craig, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you.